Ephesians. I hope you've had a chance to read it. And if not, today that's your afternoon challenge. Read Ephesians in one sitting, front to back. It won't take long. And I guarantee you will be encouraged as you read God's Word, especially as you read Ephesians. I can't say that of Leviticus, but I can say it of Ephesians. Guaranteed. So we are at Ephesians chapter 4, and really this is a transition point, very typical of Paul's letters. He has this transition point where the first half of the letter is quite different from the second half. The first half of Ephesians is really the good news. The second half is good advice that goes with the good news. Or I like as Daryl Johnson, uh, pastor and, and author, he said this, the first half, Ephesians 1 to 3, is the wonder of grace. The second half is the walk of grace, right? We don't want to just be hearers of this word, this gospel. We want to live it out. We want it to change our lives. We want to see our communities, our families, our country be different because of this great good news in Jesus. So in chapters 1 to 3, Paul paints and tells us of a new reality that exists now because of Jesus. That's so important to get. As you read through Ephesians, Paul is not some, talking about something future. He's not talking about heaven that is to come. He's talking about here and now. You are already, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are already seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Your spot is guaranteed and you are experiencing it now. Well, you're seated right now in Bonavista Baptist Church. But according to Paul, you are equally, this is the equal reality, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. It's now. So Paul paints this new reality for us. He says, this is the reality that we're living in. In the second half of the book is the invitation to live in that new reality, to live from that place of being seated with Christ. And that's what he starts to work out. So this is all about identity. And we find from Paul and from the gospel that our identity is first and foremost, if you're followers of Jesus, we are in Christ. We are made for a purpose, the purpose to do good. And we are included in the blessings of the family of God. We belong. We've been brought in. We're no longer outsiders. We are brought in and we belong. This is our identity. This is who we are, says Paul. How is this possible? Well, Paul says, because you are united with Christ. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he rose again from the dead according to the scriptures. And if we believe in him, we died with him, and we rose to new life with him as well. That's the reality that Paul is saying. Now the task is to live that reality out in our everyday lives. How do we do that? Well, Paul says, since you are united with Christ... Live in unity. That's what Paul's one great way that we live out the gospel. There's lots of great ways he talks about living out the gospel, but this is one that we like to talk about, but is very hard to actually live. He says, since you are already united with Christ, live in unity. Uh, Joni Erickson Tata, some people might recognize that name. She said this, Believers are never told to become one. We are already one, and now we're expected to act like it. That's the challenge, isn't it? 
How do we do that? How do we live out the reality of being already united in Christ? That's the challenge that we're facing. So living in unity is the essential expression of our identity together in Jesus. That's what it looks like. Okay, I'm going to play with your mind a little bit this morning and see just what does this look like practically speaking. I'm going to give some just two kind of crazy examples, but I want to invite you to kind of work this out as a bit of a mind experiment as you think about this later on. First example is this. Imagine a supporter of the Edmonton Oilers. There's lots here. I see you around. You're not hiding. In fact, I think there's more of them now than there were a couple of months ago. Do you realize that a supporter of the Edmonton Oilers and a supporter of the Calgary Flames, if they are believers in Christ, have more in common than two Edmonton Oilers supporters who have no interest in Jesus? Okay, now I know that's ridiculous. Sounds ridiculous. But work with me here. Because here's what the world wants to do to us. It wants to divide and conquer. It wants us all to get into our little segregated groups, support our own teams, and then fight against each other. Whether it's against country against country, whether it's, it's uh, person to person, neighbor to neighbor, or sports team to sports team. We're always being forced to segregate. And what we don't realize is that person up in Edmonton who's a uh, you know, fan of that team, if they're a follower of Jesus, they have way more in common with me than two guys that have no interest in Christ, even though they support the same team. Okay, let's up the ante a little bit. Let's talk about something that matters a bit more. Politics. Are you ready? Oh, dear. Someone said. A follower of Jesus. Now, don't shout out or groan. This is not a political rally. A follower of Jesus, who is a liberal supporter, has more in common with a follower of Jesus who is a conservative or supporter than two conservatives who just attended the Tucker Carlson rally <laughs> who have no interest in Jesus. Do you see where I'm going with this? Right? So, so and we should be thankful in our political system that we have people on the opposite side. If we only had one political party that we all had to support, that would be some other country. Right? And so we should be thankful for those who are opposite from us. But what we need to realize as followers of Jesus is that our identity is not rooted in our political affiliation. Our identity is also not rooted in our sexuality. Our identity is not rooted in what team we support. Our identity is rooted in Jesus. If, if that is true, we have more in common with people who sit opposite from us if their identity is also in Jesus than we realize. And that facilitates conversations because we can have disagreements then and still recognize that ultimately we are one in Jesus. We are united in Christ. This is what Paul is saying, and this is why it's both so revolutionary and yet so difficult to live out right? Because we are constantly fighting against the world's tendency to try and squeeze us into its mold. And we have to resist it constantly. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3. Listen carefully. There is neither Jew nor Gentile. He says, your identity is not from your ethnic origins. There's neither Jew nor Gentile. There's neither slave nor free. It's not according to your social status. There's neither male nor female. Right? It's not according to your sexual identity. 
For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And people hated him for it. Because that is revolutionary, isn't it? You're all one in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus today, you have far more in common with the people sitting around you that are also followers of Jesus than you realize. Why? Because we're already in Jesus. We're already united in Christ. And so we're invited to live out that unity. That unity, not the uniformity of all believing exactly the same things and supporting the exact same issues. We need that diversity, actually. But we have this unity that is found in Jesus. So what does that look like? Well, Paul spells it out for us in this chapter in at least three ways. So let's go through it quickly. First of all, he says, we are united in our walk together. That's what, how the whole passage starts out as we get down uh, into verse 4, verse 3 and 4. Uh, the word that's used there literally means to walk around. I know it's translated differently in the New Living and other translations. It talks about to live the life worthy of the calling you have received. But the literal translation is, is to walk around in the life. Walk around in the calling that you have already received. To walk, and that word walk is so important all throughout Scripture. That's how people in the Old Testament and the New express what it means to have faith. To walk in the path of righteousness. That's what it means to have faith. And then when Jesus comes, he reveals something extraordinary. He says, that path of righteousness is me. I am the way. And so when we walk in the way of Jesus... We are walking that path of righteousness. And so here's the invitation. Faith is this long obedience in the same direction, but not done as an individual. This is a walk that we take together. That's the unity that we have in our walk, that we're on this journey together. I love the way that uh, Eugene Peterson translates it in verse 4. He says, You were all called to travel on the same road, and in the same direction, so stay together, both outwardly and inwardly. You have one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who rules over all, works through all, and is present in all. Everything you are and think and do is permeated with oneness. Don't you love that? You are on the same road together, so stick together. Stay together. Unity is this expression of of what God has done for us in Christ. We are united in our walk together. Second thing is this. We are also united in our work together. I worked really hard to get these all these Ws, so hope you appreciate it. We are united in our work together. Uh, one clear thing that comes out in the passage is that unity, as I've already said, is not uniformity. In fact, there's great diversity in this passage. Again, Eugene Peterson says in verse 7, but that doesn't mean that you should all look and speak and act the same. Out of the generosity of Christ, each of us is given his own gift. And he goes on to list some gifts. But before he does that, he quotes from Psalm 68. But he does it in kind of a strange way because Psalm 68 says this, When you ascended on high, you took many captives. You received gifts from people, even from the rebellious. What's happening here? In Psalm 68, the image is of the conquering king returning home. And as the conquering king comes home, all the other vassal kingdoms are supposed to send gifts to the conquering king. 
Well, if you read it in your Bible in Ephesians chapter uh, verse seven, uh, chapter four, verse seven, you'll realize that Paul changes it around a little bit. Jesus, as the conquering king, instead of demanding gifts from others, he's the one giving the gifts out. That's quite remarkable. And so as part of the celebration of the victory of Jesus, he has given each and every one of us gifts. Gifts by his spirit. In order to do what? So that we can have a good time and celebrate our gifts and, and, and have happiness and peace forever? No, he's very specific. The idea of having these gifts is so that we might build the body of Christ into unity. There's the unity thing again. So that we might live together and walk together and work together in unity by each using our own individual gifts. So Paul does this in many different places. In Corinthians and here in Ephesians, he lists a number of different gifts. And you might be familiar with this. And maybe even if you grew up in the church, you had to take a gifts analysis or evaluation. Maybe you did it as an adult, right? And whenever I took that, I always made sure that I marked it a certain way so that it was clear that my gift was going to be singing. It's not. But you know how we take those tests? <clears throat> it's kind of a funny story. I <clears throat> won't get into this too much. But <clears throat> when I was in grade five, it's going back a few years. When I was in grade five, we did this crazy experiment in class. And uh, maybe some of you did it. We played lifeboat. And every person in the class, I hope they don't do this still today in school, every person in the class received a card and it said who you were, right? And there's like 30 kids in the class, but there's only 20 spots on the lifeboat. And so then the class gets to vote who's going to be thrown out into the sea. What a terrible thing to do, honestly, right? Well, I don't know why, but my card said religious minister. And I knew I was doomed. <laughs> right? I think I actually said 50-year-old religious minister. And I was like, I just might as well go to recess now because there's no point. I was like, why would I receive that card? And then, you know, in grade seven or eight, I did the uh, career testing, right? And I did this career testing. It came up religious minister. And I was like, no, I redid it, and it came up and said, conservation officer, and I was like, yes! You know, I made sure I circled, I love the outdoors, and I do all this kind of stuff. Again and again, so sometimes the gifts that God has given us, uh, you can't escape them. You just have to lean into them, right? But here's the point. When we use our gifts for the benefit of the church, we begin to realize in our practical lives what is already true in Christ, we see the unity of the body of Christ. And so the Spirit gives the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers and a whole lot more. These are the leadership gifts that, that Paul mentions. I won't get into them too much because these gifts are often over-dissected and then we lose the impact. But the main point is the purpose of these gifts, which is this, to equip God's people for works of service. So that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith. The purpose of all of our gifts is to equip one another for these works of service. And so the, the church has been given apostles, the sent ones, so that the church can be apostolic. So the church can be sent. Okay, The church is given prophets so that the church can be prophetic and speak to the culture around us. 
The church is given evangelists. <clears throat> you see where I'm going with this? So that the whole church can evangelize. The church is giving pastors so that the whole church can care. The church is given teachers so that we can all teach. So we are meant to be equipped to do the work of ministry. These characters, these apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, they weren't set aside to do the work. They're set aside to equip the church so that together we do the work of ministry. That's unity. That's unity in our work together. One last thing. <clears throat> we're not only united in our walk together and our work together, but we're united, or meant to be united, in our witness together. And we didn't read this part of the passage, but in verse 21 it says this, Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Paul does this a lot. He talks about putting off certain things and putting on other things. It's as if God has made us beautiful, brand new clothes. I don't know what that would be in your mind. Maybe it's a brand new suit for me, right? But it just hangs in my closet. And as I walk around in rags all day long, and Paul says, what are you doing? You've got a suit in the closet. It's already made. It's for you. Put it on. Put it on. And this is what Paul is saying. You're already in Christ. Put this on. Wear it. Walk around in it. You know, enjoy it. Appreciate it. This is what we're meant. We're meant to be united in our witness together by putting on Christ, by putting on what he's provided. What does that look like? Well, he says, stop doing at least four things. <laughs> stop telling lies. Don't let anger control you. Stop stealing and don't use foul and abusive language. So stop doing that. Some people are like, oh, no, hopefully not too many. <laughs> stop doing that because that's part of the rags. That's part of the old clothes. That, that's not a good look for you, right? And instead, what are you supposed to do? Tell the truth. Use your hands for good hard work. Give generously and say helpful and encouraging things. That's what it means to put on this beautiful new suit that God has already provided for you. Because our witness matters, right? And our witness is meant to be this kind of unity. The bottom line is this in Ephesians chapter 4. Do not bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way you live. Do you feel that? Don't bring sorrow to God's Holy Spirit by the way that you live. Instead, live in the unity of the Spirit because you are already united with Christ. Bishop Leslie Newbegin, uh, one of my favorite quotes in the world, uh, he said this, How is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? How? I'm suggesting that the only answer, the only true expression of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. That's our testimony to the world. Not simply to believe the gospel, but to live by it. That's our witness together. That's another expression of our unity. I heard a story uh, this last week about a teacher. 
And she uh, lived in, in part of the United States and in her particular area um, experienced a lot of poverty and not very high education levels. She is, still to this day, a kindergarten teacher. And you think, well, that's just kindergarten. You just go and play, right? Well, she had her kindergarten students come in. She realized that they were all over the board in terms of their abilities. Uh, some could spell some very basic words, you know, cat, dog, those kind of things. But others didn't even know how to hold a book the right way up, right? These kids were all over the map in terms of their abilities. How was she going to get this class ready for grade one and ready to achieve what they needed to achieve when they entered grade one, two, and three. Well, she clued into something that's really important. She clued into the fact that the one thing that a little kid wants to be is what? An older kid. Do you realize that? To, like, think about it for a minute. That's what, uh, think back to even when you were a young teenager. All you wanted to do is get your driver's license. You want to be 16. Well, I was in BC. 14, if you're in Alberta, right? When, when you're a younger child, you, you want to be an older one because they seem to have more fun. They're faster. They have more abilities. They have less restrictions, right? All those kind of things. And so she was like, aha, I know what I'm going to do with my class. The beginning of the school year with this kindergarten class, she said, okay, students, you, by the end of this year, are going to be grade three students. And they're like, what? That's awesome. Right? And they were so excited. And in fact, she changed how they addressed one another. Rather than just calling each other by their first names or something worse, they always had to address each other as scholar so-and-so. Right? Scholar Simpson. And so they had to address each other this way. And they reminded each other as they came to class of their purpose in being there. Halfway through the year, they did testing, and this is a true story, that entire class, the entire class was testing in math and in reading above a grade one level at that halfway through the year. Remarkable transformation. What did she do? She gave them a new identity. Their identity was mixed up and confused, and maybe they were told that they were no good, or maybe they were shamed by their parents or their peers, uh, but she gave them a new identity that elevated their expectations. I think that's a little bit about what's going on here with Paul. He says, I know you don't feel this all the time. I know you don't feel like you're in Christ. I know that we fail, but this is the reality. You are in Christ. You are made for a purpose. You belong here. Now live it out. Live it out day by day. Walk around in that identity. So, we live out our new identity in Christ, how? By walking together in the same direction. By working together for the common good. And by witnessing together to our new life in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are already one in Christ. Let's live into that unity. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you've already done something that we could never do on our own. We can barely agree on where to go for lunch. But you have unified us already in Jesus, in your Son. And that common bond has brought us together, not only in this room, but around the world, and not only at this time, but in all generations before. Father, forgive us for the times that we've forgotten that our identity is in your Son, and that we have focused on other things that has caused division and wars and conflict, even among your own people. 
And Father, help us to be people of peace in this world who find our identity in Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.